Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach and then From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is imagery. In fact, some would say this is the most concise retelling of the Christmas narrative you will ever come across. What do we see in this imagery? Understanding most of these images are lifted from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. What we see, first of all, is that there is a dragon, and he lost, and now he's really, really angry. Look at the vision as it unfolds before your eyes. There's this woman. She's clothed with the sun. Uh, She stands on the moon. She has, uh, what is it, 12 stars, 24 stars around her, 12 stars around her head, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the New Testament. Some would say she represents Mary. More than likely, she represents God's people, the people of God, who, who are 12 tribes before Christ and 12 apostles after. And she gives birth to a child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And that is, she gives birth, the people of God, ancient Israel, gives birth to the Messiah who will be the one who ultimately rules on David's throne and makes everything right. And and the, the dragon tries to destroy Jesus, and Jesus is taken up to heaven. And so he then turns his vengeance on the people of God, the woman, and on all of her offspring, all those who are born of God's people, the church, those who believe Jesus, and follow him with their lives. That's the story. That's the picture. There's a dragon who lost it. Now he's really, really mad. Who is the dragon? It says he's called the devil or Satan, that serpent of old, identifying him with the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, identifying him with uh, the devil, uh, uh, with the serpent, with, the, uh, uh, with Satan. St. Peter In his first letter, chapter 5, he warns the early Christians and us. He says, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His colleague, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, says, even Satan distinguishes himself as an angel of light. He can appear 
as a good thing worthy of praise. James, another apostle, chapter 4 of James, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. His expectation is that the ordinary life of the Christian, trying actively to follow Jesus, trying actively to represent Jesus, that you will face obstacles, and that there are supernatural forces, intelligences that are at work, and they do not have your best interest interests in heart. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, in your anger do not sin, husbands, wives. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. And later what Rena read in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means our real battle is not political but rather it's against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil, he says, in the heavenly realms. There is a dragon, and he lost. He was cast down and lost his role of accusation. And he cannot accuse you before God any longer, and he is enraged beyond rage and turning his venom against you if you are following Jesus. And his main ministry we see is to accuse. The text says the accuser of our brethren who accused us before God day and night has been cast down out of heaven, out of God's presence. God will no longer entertain the accusation because this child was born. He did what he came to do and then he was snatched up to heaven and the world is now changed. Stars have fallen. The world, the cosmos is transformed. And he can no longer accuse you. Satanas, Satan in Greek, means adversary. Diabolos, or devil, means accuser. Uh, He certainly tempts, but even more so, he is that voice. You may may misunderstand and think it's the Holy Spirit, but when, when the accuser is speaking to your soul, he is saying, you stink, you're disgusting. If people knew what you were, they would recoil in disgust. You hypocrite, you deceiver, you are so fake, you are so vile, you are so filthy, you are unlovable. That's the voice of the accuser. That's what accusation sounds like. The voice of the Holy Spirit convicting you is saying, you are loved, you are cherished, and your Father wants you to live in freedom. He wants you cleansed. Come out, be cleansed, be freed, live as a son. You have been adopted. Live out your destiny, your identity as one loved in Christ and set free. Be who you are as a new creation. And don't let this stuff hold you down any longer, but be free. It's a different voice the voice of the accuser, and this is real, folks. There is, a, there, is, there is a dragon, and he lost, and he's really, really angry. It's not make-believe. You know, I think as, as Christians in the modern secular West, we have to very intentionally distance what Scripture says from what Western civilization has applied to it. Uh, the Bible does not tell us very much about this intelligence Uh, that is hostile to God, and these other intelligences, angels who are hostile to God. Uh, It doesn't say anything about a red suit or horns on his head or a pointy tail. It certainly doesn't say that he lives in a place called hell. That's where he'll end up. But right now it says he's on the earth. He's walking walking the corridors, folks. Uh, Very little that we're actually told about this. 
And so we have to distance that and realize, nevertheless, that there is something that is very real here and very diabolical, very evil. I mean, you look at, at Germany in the 1930s. Germany was the most advanced civilization in the history of the earth. The arts were flourishing in Germany in a way that they had flourished nowhere else. The, the music, the art, the architecture, the culture, the literature, the richness, the most advanced and most progressive policies, the most advanced and most progressive uh, movements in industry and education and the sciences and human learning. How is it that this most advanced, most spectacular, most brilliant civilization could, within a few years be using all of their logistical excellence and, and, and engineering prowess to figure out how most efficiently to murder 9 million people in ovens and gas chambers and work camps. You know, it makes you wonder, I, is there something more going on here? Is this it seems like a little more than your average squabble between people with differences. Is it possible? I don't know. Is it possible that there is something truly demonic at work, taking ordinary uh, offenses and ordinary sins and ordinary failings and ordinary issues and making them so much deeper and so much more powerful, actually taking hold of a civilization, taking hold of people. What if evil really does exist? What if it's really out there? What if it's a, a force at work behind the scenes causing our normal fallenness and greed and resentment to become so much more intense? Why is it so hard to have a consistent prayer life? Why do you have your worst arguments on Sunday mornings? Why does it seem like the most likely sign that God is actually doing something is that there are 15 roadblocks that suddenly appear in order to try to stop it from happening? Why, when a local seminary decades ago saw real revival break out on campus and the whole focus of the school was turned from a self-righteousness to the gospel of Jesus and, and the school started seeing transformation and new pastors were being formed and churches were being impacted because the gospel was taking root. Why was it at that moment that a body of a murdered student was found in a restroom below the chapel? Why is it that a pastor in Virginia warned me 25 years ago almost? He warned me that whenever God actually started using me, that my car would start breaking down a whole lot and I'd suffer multiple consecutive health crises. Uh, why is it over the last two and a half years that I've had a half dozen different diagnoses? Why is it that we don't have to look for temptation? It seems to search us out and is ready to pounce at our weakest moment. Why does that voice in your head accuse you and leave you feeling locked in a prison of shame? Why is it so loud and so powerful and so out of proportion to the reality of what you've experienced? This is real, folks. There is, we're seeing here, there is a dragon, and he lost, and he is angry, and he is causing us trouble. I tell a story that I don't tell in public often because usually people think I'm crazy, uh, or weird, or it freaks them out. But um, uh, years ago, I've shared it some. Um, years ago, I remember doing a, a new member seminar at uh, the home of Eric and Michelle Kenyon. And uh, before going over to uh, basically talk about the gospel, talk about Jesus with a room of people, some of whom were Christians and many of whom were not yet in Christ, 
uh, I had been listening to a CD, or actually it was a video, of uh, some Indian Carnatic classical music. It was really beautiful sounding from southwest India. I didn't know at the time that the music was all in praise of Vishnu and Shiva and Kali. Um, but it was beautiful stuff, and I remember putting it on pause or stopping and getting in the car, grabbing my Bible, going over to the Kenyan's house, and, and in my car, I'm not making this up, there was something in my car. I looked around. I could not see anything in my car. I could not hear anything in my car. I could absolutely feel something in my car, at times pressing down on my, pre- on my shoulders, on my chest, an intense feeling of malice, of, of evil, of utter hatred and this intense feeling of dread down in my gut. And as I'm driving over to the Kenyans, I'm going through at this point DSM-4, trying to find out what diagnosis this might be. But there was something in there, and it was palpable. And I thought, what is going on? I opened the door of the Kenyans' house. They said, is something wrong? I said, I'm not sure. Just pray for me. And then I go into their house, and the whole time I'm trying to explain the gospel— Uh, Just the basics that Jesus died for you to set you free. That you don't have to to earn God's favor. Jesus did that for you. That that all of your sin and your guilt and shame, he's taken on his shoulders. And you don't bear it anymore. He has borne it for you. You have a father who loves you. And as I was doing this, this intense presence of malice and evil and dread, just intense dread, was, was crushing me as I was trying to talk about Jesus. But I kept at it. And there are four or five times during the next two hours in which I felt this just immediately go away, and it was normal. For a minute or two or five minutes, and then it would come back worse than ever. And afterwards, um, I sat down with Eric and Michelle, and Michelle said, Greg, something weird's going on here, because as we were in that living room and you were talking about Jesus, I... Like four or five times, I just really felt like God was personally telling me to pray for you. And whenever I started praying for you, this intense dread came over me. Like nothing I've ever experienced. It was such oppression. And then when I'd stop praying for you, it would stop. And I'm hearing this. I hadn't shared what I had experienced. There was something in that room, and it was going back and forth between me and her. And I remember multiple times when I began uh, uh, preaching weekly, I remember for about a month, it would show up in my home and even once in my office here at church. I never saw it. You can, you can write it away. You can say, Greg, that's probably psychiatric. I think that what the Bible is telling us is actually a more accurate lens in this particular instance. There is a dragon, and he is against you because he has been defeated, and he has turned on those who follow Jesus. So what do we have to fight this kind of dragon? We've got two things. It says here that they, the early Christians, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You have an incredible power that God has given you. God has given you incredible power in your story. The power to undo the evil one's accusations, to strip him from all of his weapons— so that all he can do is voiceless accusations because Christ has declared you worthy in him. Tim Keller says that it's your story that actually God uses and and, and in ways that may be unique to you. He says this, he says, we've been prepared by the great artisan, our creator, for very specific work, which means your race and your gender 
and your skills and your gifts and even your sufferings, even your problems, even your guilt and your shame and the horrible things you've done, they're all a part of the story that God has given you. Even your problems, all ways in which the great artist has crafted you into somebody who can overcome the evil one by the word of your testimony, by the story of what God has done in your life. He says there are certain aspects of God's mission that only you can do. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some demons that only you can cast out. There are some needs that only you can fill. And there are some people that only you can reach because of the story God has given you, your unique testimony given to you by the great ultimate artist himself. And your story, it has incredible power. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. Your story doesn't have to win a Nobel Prize in literature. It's just a story of how God has loved you, how he forgave your critical, bitter, angry heart how he lifted you from a place of always judging and criticizing and evaluating to having a joy and being able to love people because, because he set you free. It's a story of regrets redeemed. Every follower of Jesus has a story. And they overcome him by the word of their testimony. In his book, Has Christianity Failed You? Ravi Zacharias points to... Uh, the power of the changed life of Christians. He talks about how in 40 years, he says, I've traveled to virtually every continent and seen and heard some of the most amazing stories of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. He says, I've seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus and their hearts are turned to good in a way that no amount of rehabilitation could ever have accomplished. He says, I've seen ardent followers of radical extremist belief systems turned from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus. He says, I've seen nations where the gospel was banned and silenced by government, nevertheless conquering the whole ethos and mindset of their culture through the message of Jesus. He says, I've been in Middle Eastern countries and marveled at the commitment of young people who risk their lives to attend a Bible study. He says, I've talked to CEOs of large companies in Islamic nations who testify to seeing Jesus in visions and dreams, and they wonder what it all means. He talks about the British author, A.N. Wilson, noted and respected atheist who only few years ago was offering scathing attacks of Christianity, how he celebrated Easter in 2009 for the first time at a church with a group of other church members proclaiming that the story of Jesus told in the Gospels is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. Uh, And Wilson himself said, my own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future even after they die. It's the lives of Christians. They overcame the evil one. They overcame the dragon by the word of their testimony. Your, your story, your unique story has incredible power. And yet it's also overcoming him ultimately by the blood of the lamb. 
the blood of the lamb that was shed, substitutionary atonement, him dying in your place. You understand what this is like. Every time there's forgiveness, there is always a price. If, you, if, you, if your kid smashes a softball through my dining room window and you come up and you knock on the door and your kid's there looking all kind of ashamed and bat in hand, he wants his softball back and there's glass everywhere and I have two choices. I can choose to make you or your kid pay for the glass. Or I can choose to forgive. And if I choose to forgive, does the glass just go back in place? No. Who has to pay to replace the window? I do as the one who chooses to forgive. And God, in choosing to forgive you, choosing to pay the price of your forgiveness and mine through the blood of Jesus, taking the death that we deserved in our place so that you, friends, if you're in Christ, will never face the judgment of God. It's the power of the gospel to set you free. The accuser can say all the things he wants all night and day. You don't have to listen to a word of it, friends, overcome because the blood of the Lamb has been shed for you. It is full, it is final, and it is complete. Virginia Prodan is an international human rights attorney and an allied attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom. She's originally from Romania, and she tells her story. She says, like most people, I was born with a hunger for truth and freedom. Unfortunately, I was born in communist Romania under a brutal and totalitarian regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. Ceausescu's Romania was a land of lies where simply questioning a government directive could lead to imprisonment, physical torture, and in many cases, death. Needless to say, we lived in a state of constant anxiety and mistrust. Anyone could arbitrarily denounce a neighbor or a classmate or a family member for making anti-government statements. The government had spies planted even in churches. The best way was to fit in and stay silent. She says, for years I watched my parents and relatives play parts of the good citizen, and I always wondered, why are we so afraid to speak out? The more fear battered those around me into silence, she says, the more I obsessed uh, 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 over finding the truth. And after graduation, I went to law school. I became an attorney, but my job assigned by the government was little more than rubber stamping rules and regulations. It was demoralizing. One evening, a client came in to discuss some paperwork related to property settlement. We'd been meeting for months now, and frankly, I was exhausted. But this particular client never seemed to get discouraged. He always smiled. He had this sense of contentment, unlike anything I had ever seen. It was as though we were somehow oblivious to all of the misery that surrounded him. He radiated joy and peace, and for some reason, that really bothered me. Without thinking, I confessed, I I wish I had whatever you have in your life. I wish I had some peace and some happiness. Do you go to church, he asked. Well, yes, on Christmas and Easter, why? Would you like to come with me to my church this Sunday? My first instinct was to decline. After all, the communist government was notoriously against churches, and under Ceausescu's rule, Christians were frequently arrested, beaten, or imprisoned. Church buildings were bulldozed. Their land was confiscated. Anyone who questioned the official atheism of the government was either thrown in jail or disappeared. For all I knew, this could be a trick to test my loyalty, and so I paused briefly to consider my next move, and then I saw once again that look of peace 
and contentment, and I wanted it so much that I said, okay. The next Sunday, I visited his church, and as soon as the choir finished the opening song, the pastor read John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. I couldn't believe what I heard. Someone was claiming to be truth. And as the pastor continued to describe the truth of Jesus, I felt uh, through the verses he shared that they were specifically written for me. Looking across the aisle, I saw my client. He smiled and nodded as if to say, now do you understand? And I did. Without realizing it, I was beaming back at him. For the first time in my life, everything made sense. I had spent years searching for the truth, but I had been looking in all the wrong places, in law school, in government, in the justice system, and I suddenly realized that truth was something that came not from books, but from God himself, the creator of the universe, my creator, the source of life and peace and happiness. Barely able to contain myself, I accepted the pastor's invitation to trust in Jesus as my Savior, From that moment on, I would dedicate my life to pursuing and speaking the truth no matter the cost. Shortly after I was baptized, she writes, I began defending fellow Christians who were facing imprisonment for transporting Bibles across the Romanian border or for sharing their faith in Christ or for worshiping privately in their homes. And this quickly made me a target. Many days, she says, I awoke to find my tires slashed. Clients and friends, even my own kids were threatened. My daughter and I were held under house arrest for a month. I was kidnapped. I was bullied. I was pushed into moving traffic. I was beaten by the secret police. For my own protection, friends and coworkers began keeping their distance. My faith was tested daily, but my greatest test was yet to come. Late at night, after a long day in court, Miruna, my legal assistant, peeked into my doorway There's a big man in the waiting room. He says he wants to discuss a case. She shrugged. That's all he'll tell me. I was taken aback at how enormous this man was. As he sat down in front of my desk, his eyes seemed to bore a hole straight through me, and a sneer formed at the corner of his mouth, and slowly he pulled back his coat and reached into his shoulder holster and withdrew a gun. You have failed to heed the warnings that you've been given, he said. He aimed his gun straight at me. I've come here to finish the matter once and for all. He flexed his fingers. I heard a click. I am here to kill you. My hands were shaking. Fight or flight instincts pinged in my brain. My chin trembled. An image slashed through my mind of my assistant arriving early in the morning and finding my lifeless corpse on the office floor. I was alone with my killer, and yet I was not. I began silent fervent prayers, recalling God's promises. God's spirit breathed peace into my panicked heart, and then I sensed his message, share the gospel of Jesus. I considered this man before me. Behind those hate-filled eyes was a creation of God. He had an immortal soul. He needed to know about the love of God in Jesus Christ. At once I was emboldened. I met my killer's eyes. Have you ever asked yourself, I asked, Why do I exist? Or why am I here? Or what is the meaning of my life? I once asked myself those questions. My voice stayed calm. It did not waver. He slid his gun back into the holster. I leaned forward. You are here because God put you here. And he has put you to a test today. 
Will you abide in God or in the will of man, your boss, President Ceausescu, who requires you to worship him instead of God? God has given you a will and you must choose. His eyes softened, my heart thumped even faster, and my confidence rose. The truth is that we have all been corrupted, she said, and gone away from God. He nodded. We are all sinners, and our sin has determined our future. Hebrews 9 says people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. His mouth fell slightly open. His hands relaxed. But the good news is that God has prepared a way for every one of us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. For the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. And as I continued to talk with him, he appeared smaller and more peaceful. And finally he brought his hand to his forehead and he said to me, You are right. The people who sent me here are crazy. I do need Jesus. And he promised, I will come to your church as a secret brother in Christ. I will worship your powerful God. And with that, my killer walked away saved, a brother in Christ. He went on to enroll in a seminary, and we've kept in touch ever since. He, like me, had found the truth, and neither of us will be afraid to speak it again. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the way and the truth and the life. Indeed, none of us could come to the Father except that you have become the way. Through your shed blood, you have opened the door that we might walk before you unashamed no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what we became. You have washed us and made us clean and clothed us in the righteousness of your Son and brought us into the family of those that you love. It is finished. And for that, we give you thanks, even as we consecrate to you the elements on this table, that you might help us to see and to taste the goodness that is you. Amen. The Lord be with you.